Today I want to tell you a little story before we get started. If you were to go to my house, where I grew up, you would find a coin collection. It's locked up, so you can't go and steal it. But my dad's been collecting coins since he was probably about five years old. He would save up his allowance, he would go to the bank, he would cash in a, a, you know, 50 cents or a dollar, whatever he saved, for pennies. And he would go through the pennies and he would pull out the special pennies. And, and over, gosh, I don't know how many years, he would find some pretty cool pennies. He'd find double stamped pennies, mis, misstamped pennies, uh, pennies that, that should have been out of circulation 50 years ago. And, and that's how he started his coin collection. My dad is a little obsessive compulsive with going through things and looking at things and being hyper-focused, you know. But it's a good thing for a coin collector. He's continued to collect coins through today. And he's gotten a little more robust in his collecting than the little kid who saved up allowance. And he has all sorts of coins. And I remember as a young kid going to a coin show with him and there was a penny he needed for one of his collections. And it was like a $572 penny. And I thought, Dad, that's a penny. Come on. It's a penny. It's worth a penny. And he explained to me a little bit more about coin collecting. Well, imagine this. Imagine if one day I needed a quarter to go buy something. And I went in, and I got out my dad's coin collection, and I took a quarter out of the coin collection, and I took it to the candy store, and I bought lemon heads because I really needed some lemon heads. How do you think my dad would react? Today we're going to talk about this. Today we're going to talk about anger. I can attest to the fact it would make my dad very angry if I did that, not because I ever took a quarter out of his coin collection, but we're going to talk about a misuse of things. And we're going to talk about the fact that sometimes Jesus gets angry. Perhaps we have a picture of Jesus that's off. Perhaps we have a picture of Jesus who's a kind of effeminate man. He um, wears white robes, very clean, really white smile, nice sandals. He smiles like this, and he frowns like this. And that's about the, the multitude of expression you get out of Jesus. You could throw a rock at him and he would just go. Or you could do something amazing and he would go. And that's how we think of it. It's Jesus. He spoke real quiet. He never shouted. He was just very even keeled. And somehow everyone heard his voice. And he walked rather slowly because Jesus never sweat. If that's how you think of Jesus, frankly, you don't know Jesus very well. You see, Jesus didn't have a, a clean and clear complexion necessarily. The man walked around in a dirty, dusty desert region in sandals. He sweat. He probably didn't smell pleasant by our, our deodorant and sanitary standards of, of modern Western world. Although I believe that Jesus would have carried Purell. He probably, that was a, a, an unrecorded miracle. He made Purell. No one knew that. Jesus smiled big. I think when Jesus laughed, it was one of those big, deep, contagious belly laughs. And when Jesus got mad, Jesus got mad. Jesus didn't speak quietly. He spoke boldly and confidently. And Jesus was also extraordinarily confrontational. We'll see a little bit more of that uh, next week when we talk about a guy named Nicodemus. But one thing you need to know about Jesus is Jesus could get, oh, good and angry. And if we want to understand who Jesus is fully, we need to understand the fact that Jesus had an angry side. So today what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at a, a passage in the Bible when Jesus got really angry. We're going to see what made him angry and see how to make sure that we don't anger him by how we live our lives. So we're going to be in John chapter 2, 
starting in verse 13. And we read, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised up from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. All right. Passover's at hand. You know what Passover is? Remember the story of Passover? The Exodus? The Jews are in Egypt, and uh, Moses says the famous, uh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, oh, no, no, no. This is a Dr. Seuss Bible version. So God sends ten plagues, and each plague doesn't do anything but harden Pharaoh's heart more until finally God sends the final plague. And Pharaoh says, get out. Go, all of you. And they go, and, and up on that final plague, God, on the final plague, God is going to kill off the firstborn of people, of animal, unless the people paint the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and crossbeam of their door, right? Which is what he tells the Jews to do, and they do it. Well, when you read the Bible, you find out that there is to be a celebration each year to uh, celebrate Passover, God's deliverance. And here we are, it's Passover. Passover was a time when Jerusalem got crowded. You know why? People had to go offer a sacrifice if they could. And about a million plus people would be in Jerusalem this time of year. Has anyone ever been to Jerusalem? Hold a million people real well? Or does it get kind of crowded? And it's a little more spread out today too. It was packed. So Jesus walked into Jerusalem at the Passover time going to the temple. And guess what he saw? commercialization at its finest. You see, at the time, there was something called the Annas Bazaar. You know what Annas was? It's a former high priest. And he got kicked out of office by the Romans because the Romans appointed the high priest. Sound a little bit weird? That's how it worked. But Annas was basically like the Don Corleone of the Jews. He was the godfather of the temple. He appointed the priests who would serve under him. The Romans approved it. But he had control over them. They were basically puppet priests. And what he did was he set up a bazaar because when you came, you had to pay a temple um, tax. It's part of the law of Moses. And the tax had to be paid in a certain type of currency, so he set up currency exchange booths, which charged a heavy percent to exchange your money. And you had to bring a sacrifice, but it had to be a perfect, pure, unblemished sacrifice. And, and the Annas Bazaar had priests who would check your sacrifice for you, and if it was blemished, they would have to take it away and oh, they'd be happy to sell you another one. There was big business going on in the temple courts because you had to have your, your money to pay and you had to have your animal sacrifice and Anna set it up so that you had to get it from him and he made big money. This is commercialization at its finest. Now pause for a minute there. Do we ever commercialize any uh, holidays? Perhaps just a little bit? How many shopping days left till Christmas? Chew on that a little bit as we go into the Christmas season when you think about how Jesus might feel if he shows up. Think about it this way. Do churches ever get commercialized? 
Does church ever become a, a, a place where we look to get what we want from it? Oh, you have this, 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 but you're lacking that. They got a better deal on it down the street. I'm going down the street. Do churches ever offer up things to people in a commercialized setting? We'll talk about that more in a couple weeks, but it gets a little scary when you think about how Jesus reacts to commercialization in the temple and how commercialized we've gotten as a society and, dare I also say, as a people. So Jesus walks into the Annas Bazaar and he sees stuff going on. And now, if you expect the Jesus that you want, here's what he'll do. And everybody freezes. This is not good. How you worship God. And the people all of a sudden like, oh my word, it's bad. Jesus walks in. He walks up to a table and he flips this stinking thing. He's got a cord, in, a whip in his hand that he made out of cords. Cracking the sucker. He's gone out of his stinking mind. I mean, really, could you imagine watching Jesus? Imagine showing up there like if we're somehow transported in time. And this lunatic is going crazy in the temple, flipping coins and get out of here, animals, and throwing money and yelling at people. And you're like, who the heck is that? That's Jesus. What? He went crazy. Not really. We're going to talk about it in a second. But he got mad. Because he walked into his daddy's house. And what was going on is what shouldn't have been going on. If I took a quarter from my dad. Actually, you know what? I also have a, a, a stamp collection. My great-grandpa collected stamps. And he was wise enough when he passed to leave that stamp collection to me. I was not very old when he passed. I was probably about 10 years old. You could lick about 52 of those stamps to mail a letter today. They're worth a little bit more. Could you imagine if I'm licking stamps and pasting them and licking them? My great-grandpa was there. He would, he would, what are you doing? He grabbed the books from me. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, what are you doing? So he makes a whip of cord and he cracks the sucker and he drives the animal out. And he get the, get the pigeons out of here and, and get the money out of here and get, get out. This is my father's house. You will not make this a house of trade. So has he gone crazy? Did he have a bad day? Did, did uh, the disciples finally just rub him the wrong way enough? And he said, enough! Enough! No. Because look what happens when Jesus cracks the cord, the whip of cords, when he flips the table, when he drives everyone out. Pay close attention. Start with the pigeons. What does he do to the pigeon cages? Smash them on the ground? Open them up and set the birds free? What does he do with the pigeon cages? Nothing. He tells them to get the pigeons out, but he leaves them in the cage. Why? You know what's going to happen if a pigeon flies away? It's probably going to die. They're domesticated birds that can't care for themselves well. And how are you going to catch a pigeon? The animals that he sent away, he didn't kill them. They could be recaptured. The money got spilled. You could recollect it. But he's also giving people an opportunity to repent, isn't he? He flips the table, he scatters the stuff, he drives the animals, get the pigeons out of here. My father's house will not be a house of trade. He doesn't say, get out and don't come back. Even in his anger, God is full of compassion and love. Do you see that? Sometimes we misunderstand Jesus and think that he never got angry, and sometimes we misunderstand anger and think that it's always bad. Well, the Bible doesn't say, don't ever get angry. It says, do not sin in your anger. The problem we have as people is that our anger is usually bad type of anger. It's anger when someone messed with our house or with our stuff or didn't give us what we wanted. They offended us. 
They should have a verse that says, I will store up what Pastor John wants in my heart that I'll never not do what he says. And then I don't ever have to get angry, right? My kids don't have to call me Pastor John, but it could work for them real well. Well, with God, it's different. Because when God gets angry, it's always because he wants what's best for us. Jesus was in a temple where people were turning it into a a commercialized marketplace. Where people were being kept from worshiping God because they had to go through the Annas Bazaar. And he was tired of it because people were suffering in their faith. People were being kept from coming to him. Do you know what part of the temple this took place in? The court of the Gentiles. You know where the Gentiles were? The non-Jews. So in the place where people who were non-Jewish would come to the temple to learn about God, to hear about God, to see God, to look at what those people who were the priests were doing. Look at what the Jews were allowing to go on. What a shame. Could you imagine God's people commercializing what was God's so that people who didn't know God would struggle to get to know Him better? Oh, this didn't stop in the temple, did it? But think about what's going on here. So what does this have to do with us? I'm going to need honesty from you guys today, alright? Is anyone running a currency exchange place? Running one. Okay. Should we set one up downstairs? Because I'm thinking church offering, we could take them in in like uh, liras, but we could charge a 50% uh, tax on exchange, and we could ramp up church offering massively. Anyone want to do that? Anyone uh, selling animals for sacrifices? No? All right, we're in good shape. Nobody here is, is exchanging money for church offering. No one's selling animals for sacrifice. What do you say we come back next week and talk about Nicodemus? Can't be that bad, can it? Here's what it is. If you go to Jerusalem, do you see a temple? It's gone. There was a first temple. It got knocked down. It got uh, broken apart. They rebuilt it. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah? Their books in the Old Testament. Second temple? Gone. If you go to Jerusalem today, you know what you see on the foundation of the temple? You see a mosque. You see the Dome of the Rock. Does it really matter? Do we need a temple? Well, God no longer dwells in the temple. We no longer have to make offerings at the temple. Sacrifices are gone because sacrifices were done with Jesus. So are there any more temples today anywhere in the world? What's that? I agree, they're all over the place. Where's the closest one? Right here. Do you know... Let me get my verse straight here. 1 Corinthians 3.16. you know what that says? That's a good guess, isn't it? It is. 1 Corinthians 3.16 is a good verse to, to think about often. It says... Remember I told you about sticky pages in the pastor's Bible? There we go. Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's Spirit dwells in you. You no longer have to go to Jerusalem to see God's temple. You just have to go to the mirror if you're a Christian. There are a lot of temples in this room. Jesus got annoyed. There, no, Jesus got angry because people weren't using God's temple for what it was made. This gets to be a problem now. This gets to be a little more personal than I would like it to be. And that's what God's Word often does. There were priests who were placed in charge of the temple in Jerusalem. God's Spirit dwelt in the temple. Sacrifices were to be offered in the temple. 
The temple is also where the Gentiles could go to learn about God. Guess who we are, folks? We are God's temple. Peter tells us that we're a royal priesthood. No? Paul tells us that our bodies are to be living sacrifices to God. Jerusalem came here. Do you know why we're a temple? Who dwells within us? The Holy Spirit. Now that's probably one of the most overly neglected and ignored facts about our faith. God himself lives inside of us. You ever stop and think about that a little bit? That should blow your mind. Someone might say, I had lunch with the president. Wow, really? Yeah, at the White House. And I invited myself. Wow, you're cool. God lives with me. In your house? No, in me. He goes everywhere I go. Why does that not sound as cool as lunch with the president? Because we don't fully understand it. The more we understand that we're a temple, the more we understand that God dwells in us, the more we understand the tremendous responsibility that we have as Christians, and the more woeful we become over the neglect that we place on it, over the, the failure we have in our responsibility, and usually the general cause is a lack of attention to God's word and a pursuit of worldly desires. Annas and the high priest didn't wake up one morning and say, Oh, shalom, everyone. No British accent today, singing priest. Let's make money. Let's get rich. How can we do it? Oh, high priest, I know. We can sell stuff in the court of the Gentiles. Great idea. What can we sell? Can we sell trinkets and pens and books? Yes, but even better, we can sell sacrifices and coin exchange and we'll be rich. And they all went out and set it up. No, it started like this. They got into the routine and the formality and the tradition and they neglected God's word. And little by little, man's ideas took place of God's ideas. And all of a sudden, it became, how should we run the temple as opposed to God? How do you want to run the temple? That's the first thing we need to know about this. The temple is God's, it's not ours. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23 say that we were bought for a price. Here's the deal. Everyone loves the free gift part of salvation. All you have to do is just acknowledge with your head that Jesus is God's Son. He came and He died for you, and you just say, I accept it, and you're a Christian, and you go to heaven. Well, Friday we were looking at James chapter 2, and we realized there's a little bit more to it than just an intellectual assent to faith. There's the turning over. There's the trust. There's the saying, Jesus, you be in charge. I'm going to still mess up, but I don't want to mess up. I want to mess up less and less through your power. To believe, in your, to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth not just means the intellectual assent. The devil knows who Jesus is. You ain't going to meet him in heaven. It means believing it and living like it. Right? So, sometimes we think that that's all you do, but we miss the fact that in order to do that, in order to truly be saved, you take the deed of your life and you give it to God. You're in charge, it's yours. You do what you want with it. Oh, that makes it a little different, doesn't it? Because we think... I want to keep the deed for myself. Well, that's a lie that the world has us believing because you don't have a hold on the deed. It's sin or it's God. Where do you want it? You don't have the opportunity to have it. So we give it over to God because he says, I bought you for a price. And when we accept that, we become a temple. And guess who runs the temple because he owns it? God. That's the first thing we need to know. The temple Jesus walked into was no less God's than our lives because we've been bought for a price. God's word is the only source of authority for the temple. You and I, unfortunately, 
or fortunately don't decide how to run the temple. Why not? It's not ours. Could anyone, could, could I walk into any of your houses this afternoon and just say, look, it's a mess. You need to reorganize, redecorate, and run it this way. I, you're serving junk for dinner. I don't like how you got your fridge set up. You need to redo how you have your furniture laying out. This is ridiculous. Move it, move it, move it. Are you going to hop up and start moving it? You're going to say, we're all, we're, we're, as Christians, we say, oh, let's pray about it and see what God, you would say, get out of here. Why are you even here? Go. But yet we think that we could walk into God's temple and we could say, God, look, I understand this is what you say you want, this is how it's going to go, but really, you don't know what you're talking about. Here's how you should do it. You see, God, if you want people to come to faith, people don't read the Bible anymore. This idea of using your word, to, it's stupid, quite frankly. We've got to get creative. We've got we to have giveaways, and that will bring them to faith. You know, in the past, your word was relevant. Today, it's giveaways and giveaways, and, and we could show movies, and we can offer free car raffles, and people will come to church, and they'll come to faith. Really? God doesn't know what he's talking about. God, I know that, that I, my life is yours and that, that I'm a temple and the Holy Spirit dwells in me, but, but I got stuff to do. God, I got things I want to do. I got, I got a life I want to live and things I want to buy and things I want to do and things I want to have and a certain way I want people to think of me. And, and I know you think you know what you're talking about. And I know that you have all these frustrating things you tell me about waiting and perseverance, but God, I need fast food. I need fast life. I need it quick. Do it. Make it happen. Remember Jesus said, woman, my hour has not yet come. This is God's temple. He makes the rules. And the final authority on those rules is right here. If we don't know this, we're going to neglect how to run the temple. We're going to come up with clever man-made ideas. And before too long, we're going to end up a lot more like the temple that was than the temple that should be. I can't tell you how... Well, I could tell you. I won't tell you how many friends I have who... Um, who serve as pastors, who have had this slow erosion go on in their lives. They come out of seminary passionate, in love with Jesus, and want to tell people about Jesus and equip people to love Jesus and serve Him. And they get into a church, and over time, the programmatic structure wears them down. And they begin to neglect God's Word because they go to too many conferences, and they get great ideas from conferences and not from God's Word. And they start to work off of a business model and a budget, as opposed to a, a Savior who dwells within them. And little by little, they have all this cool stuff going on, and they're running a temple how they want to run a temple. And they're living a life how they want to live a life. And it's sad because they don't even know what's going on, and when they catch it, often they say, there's nothing wrong with it. And I look at people like that, and I look at myself, and I say, God, where am I doing that? God, where am I messing up? And I pray, God, please help me to never get to the point that I become an anus. Help me never get to the point that I want to live a life based off my plans. Rather, I do it off of your plans. And get to the point where I could say, no matter what. Where I could say, God, whatever you want to do with my life, do it. Let, let my answer always to you, God, be yes. Because it's not until I get to that point that I'm serving the capacity which I've been uh, entrusted with as a priest of a temple. It's a position we've all been entrusted with when we come to love Jesus. So if Jesus showed up into our lives today, would he flip a table? Would he make a, a whip out of cords? Would there be something he'd want to drive out? I think the answer is probably a resounding yes in every one of our lives. 
So how do we know what he wants to drive out? The first thing to do is this type of thing. You and I can look at our lives and, and first we'll fail to see the fruit that we bear usually through the Holy Spirit because we know ourselves too well. Think about, we were talking about Friday, think about when you grow. When you were five, you were this tall. Now you're this tall. Do you remember the transition? No, because you lived through it. In our faith, as we mature, we often don't see the maturation because we live in it moment by moment. But when we have people around us, they can encourage us along by showing us and telling us how we're maturing so we can see the evidence of God working in our lives. But on the other side of the coin, we often miss the sin that God wants to get out of our lives because we can't see it on our own. It becomes okay, it becomes common, it becomes normal. We go through our own interpretation. The first way to start cleaning the temple is by being around a group of people who love Jesus. God doesn't call us to a Bible-based fellowship or a church because he wants us to have plans for Sunday. God's not some cruel deity. He's like, you guys work Monday to Friday. Ha, let's blow Sunday morning up for you too. Now you go to church. He wants us to develop relationships so we can have people who can encourage us and point out things in our lives that we're not seeing clearly. But even before that, we go to prayer. How often do you pray, God, convict me of what I need to be convicted of. Encourage me, but convict me also. What do you want to drive out of my life? It's your life. You lead it. And then quiet down and listen. Or read God's word, not in clever things to tell other people, but in hearing from God, especially the Psalms do this well. Going through and allowing God to convict us of what's in our life that shouldn't be, and allowing him to remove it. Because the news is this, folks. You can't clean the temple on your own. You'll get exhausted. But God will do it for you. I'm not saying there's no effort to go into this on your part. But let God lead, let God lead the effort. Let God guide, let God empower Because you will never desire the things of God unless you pray and ask God to create in you a clean heart and to renew a right spirit within you. Help my ways, God, become your ways. Help my thoughts become your thoughts. Help me see things from your perspective, God, because from where we sit, it's a mess. From where he sits, it makes sense. So you've got to have people around you who know him. You've got to have prayer going on. You have to lean on God. Also, you have to stand guard at the gate. Now, if the high priest was working the way God would have wanted, when someone came in with the oxen for sale or the pigeons, you know what he would have said? Not here, folks. In a time shortly before, all this stuff used to happen in the Kidron Valley, right outside of the temple. When it started coming into the temple, the priest should have said, not here, folks, not here. How do we stand guard at our gates? What are the gates of our temple? The eyes and the ears. You really got to pay attention to this. What do you let through your eyes and your ears? I was reading a book last night, and it was talking about anger in our society, and how it's such an angry society, and the the author was marveling over the fact that we wonder why when we watch TV of of violence, and and we watch news of of appalling things, and and then we read novels with horrible language and, and things that are just not pleasing to God going on, and then we close our eyes and try to go to sleep. And that stuff stews in our brains all day, and we get up and we go about a day through that way. And folks, you and I need to be very careful about what we let through the gates of our temple because it affects us tremendously. We are a royal priesthood. We need to live like that. But that's tough. And if you're honest with me right now, some of you are probably thinking, oh, come on. There's stuff I do, there's stuff I watch, there's stuff I read, there's stuff I talk about, there are people I interact with all the time that that I know 
wouldn't be exactly what God would want me to be doing, but I kind of just need a break sometimes. I need to be able to sit down and just relax and enjoy a mindless activity, right? Fair? Anybody not thinking that? Here's the problem though, folks. It's not mindless. It's mind-altering. We're all brainwashed by society to varying degrees. And that stuff we watch in that entertains us, you're never going to be able to do this. You're never going to be able to say, I'm going cold turkey. I'm quitting all the junk, and I'm just going to read my Bible, and I'm going to listen to gospel music until I go to sleep. It's not going to work. You may do it for a week. You might even pull it off for two. But then you're going to get dragged back into it. Here's what you got to say. God, I really, really, really like this stuff. Like he doesn't know. You don't have to keep it a secret from God. I really like watching this or, or reading this or talking about this. And, and gossip, God, it's fun, man. I know stuff about people that you wouldn't believe. Oh, he would believe it. But we think it's fun. And we say, God, I remember that story of Jesus flipping the table and cracking the, the whip and getting all mad. And I realized that it wasn't because he had a bad day. It wasn't because his plans weren't being accomplished. It was because he wanted what was best for the people. And there's something in my heart that might be sounding like, this isn't what's best for me. But I really, really like it, God. Can you help me out? God, would you help me find joy in what you find joy? Would you help me not like what you don't like? And little by little as you pray that, here's what you're going to see. When you let God have the deed to your life, when you take your life plan and you crumple it up and you chuck it away and give God a blank piece of paper and say, God, you write the life plan, I'll do it. You will see little by little that the man knows what he's talking about. That the chuckles on the... Diane pointed this out to me a couple weeks ago. When you watch, and I watch sitcoms on TV, there's a laugh track. Do you realize what we do? We watch a show... Someone pushes a button and people laugh on the TV and we laugh. We would laugh at anything on the TV even if it's not funny because there's a laugh track. That's kind of scary, isn't it? What do you find funny? What I'm told to find funny. It's a little bit freaky. What we find is the laugh at what we think is funny is nowhere near what true funny is. Now, I'm not saying that TV, there's not funny stuff on TV. There's plenty of funny stuff on TV and it's okay to watch TV sometimes. But the laugh you get from TV isn't the laugh that Jesus has when he laughs. He has the belly-shaking, diaphragm-tearing laugh that you... You know the laughs you hear that you can't just help laugh because you heard the laugh? That's the laugh God wants to give us. The joy that you've probably experienced only in brief passings in your life is the joy that God wants to give you. But you know what stands in the way of you and that joy and you and that laugh and you and that wonder? The fact that we want to run the temple. That we got stuff we like and we say, God, I know that you sound like you know what you're talking about, but really, you know, those who wait on the Lord, well, yeah, I'll wait, but I got stuff to do while I'm waiting. You know, do not, do not trust in yourself, but trust in God. Well, I, I would, but seriously, what do you want me to trust in? Remember that book? Yeah, this book is boring. Mm. You know why? Because we are entertained and we have a low focus and it's not something you can just correct. It's God, here's the deal. I want to read the Bible, but it's boring. Could you please help me understand it so it's not boring? Whatever you pray in God's will, He will give to you. The Bible is very clear on that. And then we work on like, okay, Dylan, you got one year, right? You're thinking, if I could ask God for a car and somehow manipulate it to be His will, a brand new sport car, then I got it. 
I'll work on that for you. I don't know how that goes. But there are some things that God tells us very clearly, and if we pray them, because we know it's His will very clearly, we are guaranteed to receive it. Not necessarily like that, but we will be guaranteed to receive it. God wants us to read the Bible. God wants to speak to us to the Bible. Start with prayer. God, I want it to. Can you please give it to me? God, I want, I want the, the, the life of abundance. The John 10, 10, I came to them to give life and give it to them abundantly. God, I want that. Well, he wants it for you. Guess what? You pray it, you want it, you're getting it. The million dollar check, that one you're not guaranteed on. But the stuff God tells us here, the clean heart, the joy, the life to abundance, the, the, the fruit that we can bear, the abundant fruit that we can bear, to be used powerfully, to be a light that shines through us, where other people can see him and come to him, it's guaranteed if we let him run the temple. And it all starts with prayer. It all starts with thinking about a man who flipped a table and cracked a whip and rode animals out and got pigeons out and scattered coins. And think about this. The next time you sit down and you let your mind wander or you start finding yourself doing things you shouldn't be doing or thinking about doing things you shouldn't be doing, think about who dwells in you. The next time you go somewhere, think about who's going with you. The next time you sit and gossip, think about who's part of the conversation. And realize this. None of those acts exclude you from heaven. When you come to faith in Christ, you are forgiven for all your sins once and for all. It's a done deal. You have assurance of salvation, but you can grieve God. And the man who flipped the tables, he flipped the tables because he wanted to get things right. And God never changes. So Jesus didn't flip the table and then all of a sudden become passive Jesus. Jesus flipped the table and he is a passionate Jesus. And he will flip tables in your life if he has to. Because he loves you and he owns your life and he wants what's best for you. I think it's a much easier route to just trust him and follow him than to have to have him discipline us or correct him. But he tells us that he loves us and because he loves us, he will discipline us where needed. Well, let him discipline us through prayer and through his word. Let's not be stubborn kids because stubborn kids get bigger consequences than less stubborn kids. We say, God, give us a soft heart, not the hard heart. Help us to be children who you say... Well done, my good and faithful servant. Because as we do, oh my word, the things that God will do in us and through us will amaze us. We don't become a people with plans to try to do stuff that we think will be pleasing to God. We don't become a church of people who make stuff because we think it will reach the community and bring so many people to faith. We become individuals who follow God. We become a church who seeks to glorify God. And we sit back and we say, God, whatever you want. If this is my last day here on earth, I'm fine with it. God, if this, if this church, you only want to give it two more weeks, okay. You know why? Because it's yours. Because this is yours and everything in my life is yours. I'll be honest with you, I'm not quite there yet. I'd like to get there. Because when I sit down with Jesus, he's not going to physically flip me over. But I want to see the big smile and the belly laugh. I don't want to see a frown. I don't want to make the man who hung on the cross and died for me because of my sins angry. I don't want to make him weep. The fear of the Lord is a good thing because it's a root of understanding. It's a root of wisdom. When we understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God, when we understand that Jesus invited some guys to sit and eat with him so that they could get to know him, when we understand that Jesus who made water into wine simply to help a friend is also the same Jesus who flipped tables. We start to understand who he is. He loves us enough to flip a table. He loves us enough to turn water into wine and everything in between. Jesus is God. God dwells within us.
because God loves us. And when God dwells within us, we become His. The question we need to ask ourselves is, are we willing to trust Him enough to do it? So who is Jesus? The owner of your life as well. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for uh, the fact that you are not a passive God. I thank you for the fact that you are not concerned with impressing people. I'm not, I'm, I thank you for the fact that you don't do things the way the world tells you to do them. And at the same time, I, uh, I pray for forgiveness for the fact that I, I try to put that upon you, that I live that way at times. God, you are not our genie in the bottle. You do not do our will, but we do your will. And that's great news when we realize it more fully. God, I would pray right at this very moment, starting right this moment, you would begin to work mightily in our lives, helping us understand the awesome privilege and responsibility it is to be a temple. Of the reality of the fact that, that God, you yourself, dwell within us. The same God who created the heavens and the earth. The same God who parted the sea. The same God who turned water into wine, who, who made all life, who sustains all life, lives inside of us. God, that makes no sense intellectually. But it's an absolute fact. And that's an incredible power that dwells within us. And to sit and, and struggle as I do, and as I'm sure others do, with making right choices and living to glorify you is just, is just exemplified as a fact that I trust way too much in myself. And I pray that you would help all of us trust more fully in you so the power that dwells in us can be used fully for your glory. God, help us understand that we are a temple, that we are a place that, that, that exists to glorify you, that we are a place where others should be able to come and learn about you and to see you. And God, I pray that you would remove the junk from our lives, that you would convict us. And God, we know you'll do it gently, but I pray you would do it deliberately, that you would make it not a burden on us, but a blessing, that we would not feel like you're taking stuff away and removing the joy from our life, but that you're taking the junk away to replace it with joy. But God, give us a passion after you. Don't, don't give us just a cold turkey mindset of getting rid of it and dealing with it. But God, give us a desire after your own desire. Give us a heart after your own heart so that we could find joy where you find joy and look back down the road, maybe 10 years from now or 20 years from now, and look at the things in which we used to find joy and, and, and laugh and weep at the same time. I think of the illustration C.S. Lewis uses of the, of the boy who lives in the slums playing in the, the filth and muck, making mud castles, who gets invited to a resort villa on the, on the sea coast. But he doesn't want to go because he thinks where he sits is fun. God, that's where we sit and we all know it. Take us to the villa on the seacoast. Take us to the life that you want us to have and prepare us for the eternal life that we can't even fully comprehend and will never fully comprehend. Help us understand more fully how we got that life through the blood of Christ. Help us understand why someone who would be so furious at the way a temple was being treated would still offer forgiveness to anyone who would take it. And help us to understand the gift that we've received through him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.